when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We have a special Thursday episode today, an emergency episode, if you will. I'm talking to Chris Best, the CEO of Substack. That's the subscription newsletter platform that lots of writers have to camp to to start their own little media businesses. Now, it's fair to say that Substack has had a dramatic week and a half or so. Last week, the company announced a new feature called Substack Notes, which looks quite a bit like Twitter. Substack authors can post short bits of text to share links and kick off discussions, and people can reply to them. They can like the posts, the whole thing. Like I said, Twitter. Twitter itself, under the direction of Elon Musk, did not like the prospect of this competition. And for several days last week, Twitter was taking aggressive actions against Substack. At one point, you couldn't even like tweets with Substack links in them. At another point, clicking on a Substack link resulted in a warning message about the platform being unsafe. And finally, Twitter redirected all searches for the word Substack to newsletter. Now, Elon claimed Substack was somehow downloading the Twitter database to bootstrap Substack notes, which I am still not sure what that means, but I got to ask Chris what he thought that meant and whether he was doing it. Anyway, all of this made Substack writers pretty mad, and it was generally not great for Elon's whole free speech word salad philosophy. So eventually, Twitter caved, and the throttling of Substack links appears to have stopped. Now, an important point here, and one Chris and I talk about quite a bit in the interview, is that it's tempting to think of Substack like a rival platform to Twitter. But until the arrival of Substack Notes, it was much more like enterprise software. Authors would build small businesses sending paid emails to people, and Substack was the software vendor that made that go. The authors were actually paying Substack. They were the customers, and Substack was providing the author's software. So by messing with Substack, Elon was messing with a lot of small business owners, which is just frankly a weird thing to do. On top of that, when you're an enterprise software vendor, you can take a pretty loose approach to content moderation. After all, it's the businesses themselves that are responsible for what they publish with your tools. 
And this has pretty much been the line Substack has taken since it started, even as various controversies have sprung up about the various people who use Substack. You might disagree with it, but at least there was an internal logic to it. But with Substack Notes, the company is in direct competition with social networks like Twitter. It's shipping a consumer product that's designed to be used by Substack readers. It's no longer just an enterprise software vendor. It's a consumer product company. And I think that carries with it another set of content moderation concerns that, after talking to Chris, I'm just not sure Substack is ready for. Like, I really don't know. You'll just have to listen to his answers, or really his non-answers, for yourself. Oh, and on top of everything else, Substack is currently trying to raise money from retail investors using a platform called WeFunder, which I have some big questions about that. You'll note that I flipped our normal decoder structure and I got to the business and structure questions at the end in order to lead into questions about that funding round and how Substack expects to grow. This is a wild one. I'm still processing it. Let me know what you think. Okay, Chris Best, CEO of Substack. Here we go. Chris Best, you are the co-founder and CEO of Substack. Welcome back to Decoder. Thanks for having me. It has been two years since you've been on the show, a little over two years. We were both effectively babies when that conversation happened. Substack had just started. I had just started with Decoder. I feel like we've both been on a real ride in that time. It felt like a lot longer than two years, probably. Yeah, I think maybe you more more than me. I want to ask just a very earthy question to begin with. You were really new as a CEO the last time we talked. I was reading that interview. I was sorting out how to ask decoder questions and how to structure the thing. And just reading it back, maybe it was a little unfair because you were figuring out how to like answer them in a CEO kind of way. (laughs) Do you feel more settled now as a CEO? I've learned a ton in the past two years. And I kind of feel like being a CEO of a startup like this, the job is sort of being bad at the current thing. And then if you, as soon as you start to feel like you're, you're kind of getting okay at it, you just earn the right to go to the next mini game with that you're <laughs> really bad at. And so I always feel like I'm constantly like learning a lot and sort of struggling to be on top of the thing that I currently have to do. But the whole time I feel like I'm, I'm learning a ton and I, you know, it's been very exciting. Yeah, I think that's just one – it's one kind of question that I think rarely gets asked of people who are on this kind of journey. Like, did it did it click in? Like, what parts of it do you feel more confident in now than, than two years ago? The story we're telling hasn't really changed, but the way that we know how to tell it and the, our, our confidence in it and our confidence in sort of what we're building and what that means for the world has gone up and up. Um, I think the team that we've built here is incredible. That's feeling really good. We sort of figured out how to make a team that can do ambitious things and have a group of exceptional people like kind of a- accomplish hairy, audacious goals together. All that stuff has is, is come a long way. I actually want to talk about that story a little bit. So Substack has told a lot of stories about itself in the, the past year since you've started. You all started with a big story about how social media was a disaster and the attention economy was a mess. You've stayed committed to that. The part of the story that has changed the most as I look back at it is what Substack is. Like, what is the product? 
I think of Substack as an enterprise software company, mm. right? It's like you provide enterprise software to writers who then go build businesses with it. And those businesses can look like one of a hundred different kinds of things. But at the core of it, you're their vendor to build a subscription email newsletter product. Is that how you think of it? That this is an enterprise software company or is it getting more consumer over time? Which is the thing that I, I would candidly say is the, the change that I'm sensing. So the thing that I've always loved about Substack, the thing that I that convinced me to to work on this in the first place, is at any given moment we've always kind of had a really big, audacious version of the thing we're trying to do. Like there is a big vision here, and that thing that you gestured at the start really hasn't changed. You know, we, we're building a new economic engine for culture. We're building a new part of the internet that's based on different laws of physics, like a different business model, subscriptions instead of ads, a different way of relating to people where you subscribe directly to you know, the people you trust rather than you know, signing up for the platform as a whole. And that thing that the potential of that thing to like really change the world and to inspire people to want to be a part of it is really compelling. And at the same time, we've always had sort of like a very concrete next step of something that we could do that gets an inch closer to that vision. And at the very start, it wasn't even build an enterprise software thing. It was like, help one person turn on page descriptions in their newsletter, in their email newsletter, was sort of like the, the very smallest sort of instantiation of, well, but now that I've turned on page descriptions in my email newsletter, I own my audience. I have a connection directly to them. I can reach them in their inbox. I can bring my email list with me. I can you know, import it, I can export it, I can get paid directly by my audience, that changes the game of what kind of stuff I'm allowed to create. And so we sort of see the journey of Substack has been like tackling a series of these like concrete next steps that get us ever closer to this sort of like big thing that we set out to do, which we're still pretty early on if we're right about the size of the thing that we're eventually going to be able to create. And the thing that you know you mentioned that is just is this just a tool, right? Enterprise software, whatever. Is this a tool that uh, is a thing for writers that readers don't even need to know about? Maybe like maybe is this like Shopify for writers or something like that? Is that you know should that be the vision for Substack? The reason I think that is too reductive and would be too small of a vision is I think the power of the network that we're building is a big part of the value that we can create for writers. And so we don't want to say you can just go off and use our, you know, publishing in a box software to start your own business. It's great that you can do that. That's that's like a necessary step one, but you want the power of a network. You don't want to be, you know, totally off the grid, having to like figure everything else yourself. You want to be able to plug into this, you know, you want to have the benefit of independence of owning your work and owning your list. And also the benefit of being part of a network that helps you grow, that helps you interact with other people that helps sort of like bring all of that value. And I think we've shown now that we can do both of those things and that both of them together, like the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So I want to hold on to that as we go through this conversation, because figuring out where Substack lives in this sort of stack of technologies that create user experiences is important for a host of reasons. And I think the most important one is the closer you are to the consumer experience, the more responsible for things like moderation you have to be. Like, I don't think Comcast or AT&T or whoever my ISP is should be responsible for content moderation. In fact, I think they should do zero of it, right? That's like the idea of net neutrality. I don't know if Cloudflare should do it or another web host or service provider. I definitely think Facebook should do it. I definitely think YouTube should do it. 
and there's a there's a gradient there, and Substack is in maybe the grayest part of that zone, right? Where it, it's a brand, and now you want me to put an app on my phone, but you do provide an enterprise software product to people, and I think you would prefer to be just the pipes and let consumers decide. And that I think has been where most of your challenges have come from is applying one set of expectations to a different part of your product. And I'm wondering if that has gotten any clearer for you. All right. So the big vision we're building this new economic engine for culture, the thing that act, that actually looks like is a subscription network, right? And the thing that we started out believing in, and, and I think have become more convinced of over time is that doing this in a way that's kind of like vertically integrated yeah. allows us to make something truly new. Right. So the fact that both we are the tool that the writer uses to compose the thing they're writing and, you know, we're sending the email that the reader sees or that we're, you know, build the app that the reader is using to read it in kind of like lets us make a combined experience that is different and better than would be possible at all if you just had a bunch of different things that were like one little piece of that stack. And so we are kind of trying to build this new thing and having Substack be providing the different pieces of that together is like a core part of what makes it work. So I think that brings us inevitably to Substack Notes, which was the new feature you all just launched. When we wrote about it, we said, hey, this looks a lot like Twitter. I think the guy who runs Twitter looked at it and says, hey, this looks a little too much like Twitter. We'll come to that part of it. But tell us what Substack Notes is and what you want it to do. So Substack Notes is a way for writers on Substack to share short form posts and recommendations on the Substack network and help them grow. So Substack is a subscription network. People don't subscribe to Substack. They subscribe to individual writers. And a lot of what writers do to grow is to promote their work and to to get into conversation with other people, to share recommendations, to share ideas. Um, And Notes is a place where you can do that within the Substack network. So I am very sympathetic to this. We launched a thing on our own site called Quick Posts because not all writers want to write a whole story every time. Sometimes you just want to write something that's really short and say, look at this thing uh, or go read this other great story. So I, I get that motivation very clearly. I think we're our ideas are probably converging more than they're not in that sense. But Substack Notes really does pull a lot of ideas from Twitter, from Facebook, from other social networks into the Substack app. And I'm just wondering how you think about the tension between that and then all the rhetoric around social networks being bad and the attention economy being unhealthy. So I think that the difference between Substack and a social network is not in how it looks. Okay. Right. The difference is the business model. You know, we sometimes say the difference is what you don't see. You don't see ads. You don't see the incentive structure that ads necessarily create. You know, it it runs on a totally different business model. It runs on paid subscriptions. The customers are different, right? The readers on Substack are the customers on a social network. Wait, you don't have to pay to use it, though. You can just download the Substack app, read everyone's free Substack posts, and then read their notes for free. You can read their notes for free, but at some point, you may discover that when you find writers who you deeply value and care about what they say and they have a paid Substack, that might be something that you choose to be a part of and is actually a big driving force for why the whole thing works. And so to look at Substack notes and say, well, it kind of looks like other products that I'm familiar with is like looking at a Tesla and saying it's the same as an Aston Martin because they both have a steering wheel, right? You both you drive them, they've got four wheels. They're completely different because the thing that powers them, the fuel is completely different. 
was it meant to compete with Twitter? No. What was it meant to do besides post recommendations? Because it feels like you want writers putting more content in the app so people use the app more, which I, I totally understand. Again, that's our motivation yeah. for our product and our site is we want our writers to participate more, be more present, build more audience, build more community. The way that I think about this is I think that the incentive structure of the social media business model pulls in a certain direction. It pulls in this direction of being sort of maximally, uh, cheaply compelling, maximally addictive, and kind of trying to like get you to spend more and more of your time there, regardless of how much you value it. And I think that sort of pull, like, I basically think that the, the truest instantiation of that today is TikTok. And I think that every company that has this business model is going to get pulled in the direction of getting closer and closer to TikTok. And then maybe yeah. whatever comes beyond TikTok, TikTok, but everything's AI or TikTok, but it <laughs> plugs into your brain or whatever it is. I don't know. There's some gravitational pull that's pulling every platform that works that way to be that whether they want to or not. And I think that that opens up an opportunity for something that is in in opposition to that, that works a totally different way, that says, hey, over here, you are the customer. You're going to subscribe directly to things you care about. The job of this app, of this inbox, of this feed is not to keep you here at all costs. It's to find you things that you value so much that you might want to pay for. And so my mental model of this is basically everybody's going to either have to turn into TikTok or turn into Substack. We're already Substack. In the broad sense, that <laughs> creates an alternative to, you know, the attention economy. It's it's Substack as a whole is an alternative to, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. And over time, we think this alternative model will grow. But it's not, it's just obviously not the case that we're going to release one feature and everybody from some other thing is going to jump over. Like, it doesn't work that way. Just to be clear, the users of Notes are kind of expecting that. Just browsing Notes the past couple of days that I've had access to it, there's a lot of hope that everyone will just move over from Twitter. Obviously, there's some Twitter-related drama that we should get into very directly. But I would just say right now, looking at the users of Notes, who are a bunch of Substackers, it's, hey, this feels like early Twitter. I hope we can keep this going and this replaces Twitter. Do you think that's a fair or appropriate expectation? I've seen the meme that you're talking about. That's not the story that we're telling, and that's not the way that we believe it's going to work. We don't think that anything is going to be the new Twitter. And we think even if that were possible, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to build the same thing. Um, I can understand how people, you know, especially writers who really want to have a reliable platform for their work, a reliable place to share, could be feeling the heat and, and looking for alternatives. I think that, that that simplistic understanding just doesn't, doesn't hold water. Let's talk about that part of it for just a quick second. So the last time we talked... Uh, you said that you were keeping track of various writers' Twitter followers as you were considering recruiting them to Substack. And there have been a lot of different deals that recruit writers to Substack. But the idea that people with a lot of Twitter followers were attractive targets to recruit to Substack came through loud and clear. I have certainly heard from a lot of people on Substack over the past two years that their primary source of conversions to paid is Twitter, right? Twitter is their best marketing engine. Substack maybe monetized Twitter better than Twitter ever monetized itself. This has been a real relationship that we've seen play out. And now Twitter is going through whatever it's going through. I think there is a lot of fear from that community that their, their single best top of funnel network is going away or will be unhospitable to them in some meaningful way. 
and notes might be the replacement or Mastodon might be the replacement, but it's certainly not going to be TikTok and it probably isn't search. Are you thinking, okay, we've got to build something that looks like the top of the funnel for Substack writers? I think the, the right way to think about this is we're trying to build ways in Substack where you can use the power of the Substack network to grow. Right to f- to reach new audiences to have a place you know th- in a Substacky way right an example of this is the recommendation feature we launched where writers can recommend each other and therefore readers can discover new things they might like not through you know sort of like a, a machine that's just predicting what you'll click on but as somebody that they've chosen to trust saying hey this is worth checking out we are extending that ethos into how notes works it's just a way that you can recommend even more things. Um, and at the same time, we want we want people publishing on Substack to be able to publish everywhere. We want people to also share on Twitter. We want them to also share on TikTok, also share everywhere. We want, you know, we think writers should be able to share their work, have the power to share their work broadly everywhere that it can go. We think that that's good. Okay. So now we got to get into it. I'm going to ask just a foundational question first. Before Elon took over, Twitter had a competitor Substack. It was called Review. What was Substack's relationship to Twitter like in the previous administration? I think it was it was fine. It was good. Like uh, one thing that I will say is there's a lot of Substack users who use Twitter and we've always thought that having that work really well and reliably was good. Like, you know, it's nice to be able to embed a tweet into your <laughs> Substack post. It's nice to be able to like look up which of your which of your uh, people you follow has a Substack that you might want to subscribe to. You know, we've we've built a bunch of pieces uh, on the Twitter API that plug in and kind of like make life better for people who are using both platforms. And we think that's good. That's something we would like to offer. From what I'm getting getting from your answers, you didn't. We weren't even thinking about your relationship to Twitter in the previous administration. It was just sort of operating the way that we expect the internet to operate. You're using the, their API, and that was fine. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, I'm just curious because sometimes for all I know, you and Jack Dorsey had like 10,000 screaming matches, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to be the case. So Elon buys Twitter, all the things happen. Last week, he makes this claim. Substack was trying to download a massive portion of the Twitter database to bootstrap their Twitter clone. So their IP address is obviously untrusted. He puts up a warning against Substack links. He starts throttling posts that have Substack links in them. He blocks the word Substack from being searched, which is incredible. What happened? So last week, we announced Notes, this thing we've been talking about. It's a way for writers to share short-form posts. We were really excited about this launch. Like We think it's a big, exciting thing. Um, but we were not expecting it to get anything close to as much attention as it's since got. Um, and really surprising to us, Twitter saw it as a threat uh, and reacted very strongly. It took a bunch of actions that ultimately hurt writers who are users of both Substack and Twitter in these cases, right? They're, they're throttling links. They're falsely marking them as unsafe. And yeah, even trying to throttle the like, discussion of the word Substack. Uh, and all of that was incredibly disappointing to us. We think writers should be able to freely share their work. We don't think that this is like a, you know, it's one thing to react to us. It's another thing to like kind of take it out on writers, many of whom are your own users. Um, And so we were really disappointed. And also there was quite a strong backlash. Um, A lot of people felt as we did that this was not a a good path. And fortunately, by Saturday, uh, it seems like this is reversed course. Their links have stopped being restricted. A bunch of the stuff 
has been rolled back. But in our mind, this whole episode has been just a reminder of why it's so important for writers to have a platform that's reliable and a platform where they own their audience. I, just to be clear, Substack was trying to download a massive portion of the Twitter database to bootstrap their Twitter clone. That's Elon's claim. Were you doing that? No. And it's one of several, it's one of several claims that, that got bandied around in this, in this time. Uh, it's not true. Why do you think Elon thinks Substack was trying to download a massive portion of the Twitter database? I don't know. Uh, and if I had to speculate, I, my guess is that they're looking for reasons to justify uh, these actions in the face of a lot of pushback. Have you had any conversations with Elon this past week? We've been trying to every route that we can to like calm this down and sort of like find a peaceful re resolution that can help writers. Um, that hasn't hasn't totally worked, and we haven't had any answers to our specific questions of, you know, are there things that we could do to make this better? Yeah, tell me what your specific questions are. Are there things that we could do to resolve this? We haven't they haven't answered with any specifics. And they haven't shown you any evidence of their claim about the Twitter database? No. And then, so, so then he just flipped it back on by himself? You, would, do you have any warning that, okay, it's going to stop being throttled? No. Nope. You, you said this, <laughs> it's amazing that you don't know the answers to these questions. Let me just try to ask a, I'm just like befuddled. Um, I have a lot of questions to ask you, but I, I just want to like put a pin in this. So you experience this because he just turns off sub he turns off embeds for Substack. So Substack writers can no longer embed Twitter posts. And then he turns off links and throttles it. How do you find out that this is even happening? We start to get complaints that things are broken. And so you look at a spike of complaints and you say, what's broken with our Twitter situation? What's the next thing you did? Uh, we were, you know, the team started looking at how to fix it. You know, what can we, what can we do? And then when you discovered it was unfixable because Twitter had taken some technical steps, you're the CEO. What's your, what's your next move? You know, unfortunately we've, we've had to pause all like usage of the Twitter API that we've been using for years uh, to power these really nice quality of life features in Substack. We've had to completely pause using it because we want it to be a reliable thing for writers. Um, and other than that, you know, we were left a little bit guessing what was happening. It has been noted to me by a bunch of reporters on our staff and by people out in the world. Andreessen Horowitz, big investor in Substack. I think they led your last round. They are an investor in the syndicate that now owns Twitter with Elon. Were they of any help to you? They've been a huge help to us in general. Um, but it is, it is the case that they're an investor in both companies. Do they convene a meeting? Did you have a dinner at Mark Andreessen's house? <laughs> I mean, of course we're talking throughout, throughout all of this. And Twitter is just basically radio silent to you this whole time. And that's what it sounds like. Is that Twitter has not said anything to you of value. Certainly we don't know much more than the world at large has been able to see. What do you think happens next here? It's hard to say. The thing that I, I'll say what I would hope would happen. The thing that I would hope would happen is that the things that are just that things have been happening that have been disrupting to writers stop happening and don't happen again. And it's made clear that, you know, this is not the way to handle these kinds of things. I would love to get in a position where we could unpause our API usage. I'd love to make any changes that 
they ask for. I'd love to get in a place where whatever we can support that makes us a reliable partner for writers uh, who also use Twitter could like come back on and work. And frankly, I would love to see Notes be a tremendous success. I'd like for people to be, you know, having conversations, growing their audiences, sharing this alongside their use of Twitter, which I think is the best possible scenario. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about what having a new algorithmic consumer facing social feed might mean for Substack's future. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. You mentioned this whole Twitter throttling thing has kind of proven the point that being reliant on one company to make decisions, especially a company run by guys and running around talking about free speech, and he's literally blocking words from being searched, it just kind of exposes the problem. Now you've got a big consumer facing social feed that looks like notes. You have a bunch of that ability now, right? If you wanted to block the word Twitter, you, you could probably do it. Why should we trust you? I think the best answer to this is we've designed the business model of Substack from the ground up to put writers and readers in charge. People don't follow you on Substack. They subscribe, right? You have an email. You can email them. You can reach out to them. You own your, you know, your, your editorial decisions. You own your relationship with your audience. You can leave Substack if you want to. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's easy for me to say, well, we're just not going to do that because it, it's not the right thing to do. We're here to be a reliable partner for writers. It doesn't make sense for our business. But also we've tried to set Substack up in a way that puts readers and writers in charge in a way where even if we wanted to do that, we'd be constrained from doing it. Yeah, I think the reason most social networks at any kind of scale don't do this stuff is because it's wholly irrational. But now we are looking at, well, it happened. 
Well, listen, they don't right, do so, they don't do this version. They don't do the sharp version where they <laughs> they change the the meaning of words on their platform, something like that. But they do do the other version, right? Like a lot of people come to Substack, it's not as remarked upon, but a lot of people come to Substack who use Instagram who worry that their following on Instagram doesn't mean the same thing that it used to mean. If you talk to people who have worked on these feeds, they'll tell you if you come up with a way to put something in the Facebook feed that gets you to read a long article or watch a long video, and you put that in the feed, it tanks the metrics. And the team that runs that thing says, take this out. It's costing us a ton of money that you found somebody, this piece of content that they love and want to deeply engage with. And so while you're not going to see, I hope, the overt version of this, you're seeing across all of these networks, the more subtle versions of it. And Substack is a place that just by virtue of the business model, we're more aligned with the writers. Would you, is this feed algorithmic today or is it just all RevCon? It's algorithmic, it's, but it's algorithmic in service of the user instead of the users having to serve the algorithm, by which I mean that it's based off of the choices people are making. It's based off of, I subscribe to you, you recommend somebody, you know, we're sort of building this trust graph in the network and everything that goes into the feed is sort of in service of that. I think I might just be like a tick too unsophisticated to understand that. That sounds exactly what Facebook would say, right? It's based on your actions, who you are following, what you like, what your friends like, what Wi-Fi networks you've been on that your friends have been on, right? That's how the Facebook algorithm works. I think there's a difference between you know, the implicit what Wi-Fi networks your friends have been on versus, you know, if I subscribe to your Substack and you choose to recommend, you say, hey, this other thing is good. This is part of my network. This is like, we're forming kind of like this scene, this community that has an emergent set of norms that has an emergent, you know, sort of like discourse that's happening within it. And there's like human beings that are making decisions about what that is and how it should be. And the platform is not trying to work against those decisions in order to get you to like see as much as many ads as possible, but is instead trying to work with them to help you discover things you deeply value. It's a completely different model and a completely different outcome. I'm really interested in the action around the decentralized social networks like Blue Sky and Noster and Mastodon. I'm really interested in what's going on with ActivityPub, which you know, Matt Mullenweg from WordPress was on and he said Tumblr is going to support ActivityPub and Mozilla supporting it. So there's a lot of energy around decentralizing these networks so that one person can't just block the word Substack from being searched. Is Notes going to be compatible with ActivityPub or Blue Sky? Have you considered that stuff? That stuff is really interesting. And we've done stuff, you know, I sort of mentioned before that we want stuff that gets published on Substack to go everywhere. And so we have, you know, RSS feeds for existing content and really interested in, are there ways that we could help this stuff spread? I don't think we have a specific plan with any of these of these protocols, but we're really interested in the, you know, in general, like how can we, how can we help people on Substack have their work travel everywhere in the world as frictionlessly as possible? The question I might ask on some of these things is, what's the right, you know, you talked about the, the levels in the stack of of thing. Like, what's the right level in the stack to have, you know, to return power to people? Like, what's the right level in the stack to say you're going to have control of your experience on these things? And I think the one answer might be like the protocol level, you know, another and protocol level even 
uh, implies like the hardware level. Like you could own your own server that runs your own Mastodon instance that then does this thing and yada, yada, yada. And all of that stuff is, you know, there's various places that you could try and like introduce freedom and control. And I guess the Substack theory on this in general is that we want that freedom of control to exist at like a higher abstraction level. Like we want you to have editorial freedom over what you write. We want you to have freedom to decide who you're subscribing to, uh, which communities to be a part of, how the communities federate together, but not have to have the responsibility to like run your own software or, you know, figure out how to like, you know, do all of the little pieces of it. We kind of want to give you this whole package that lets you do that. Did you have the product conversation we should just build this on Mastodon and choose against it? No. But have you thought about, okay, here's how we would hook into a Blue Sky or an Activity Pub or whatever it is? We haven't looked in, we, we, th- we're interested in this. I don't think we have a, any settled, any settled course on all that stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm sort I'm of sure, like, I just hear a lot of energy and I don't, I don't know if any of them are the answer, but it, it seems interesting that in this moment where you are experiencing the the most power of a closed platform that can be expressed. It's interesting to me that your answer isn't, oh, we should make sure ours is open, right? You've, you, your incentives in the business might prevent you or at least disincentivize you from making these kinds of unilateral censorship moves, but the, the product still allows you to. And it's just interesting that you haven't quite had that immediate reaction. I do think it's an interesting, because I'm very, I'm sort of very, philosophically sympathetic to these platforms and these arguments. You know, I'm a big believer in the open internet. I've grown up appreciating a lot of this stuff. And I guess, and I I was reminded a little bit of this. We went through a period where everybody would be asking me these same things, but about like Web3 stuff, right? Like when is Substack going to be a, a, you know, a trustless protocol on the blockchain and yada, yada, yada. And the, the, the two problems I always came back to, or the biggest problem I always came back to is like, is this great for users? Are we able to use this to make something that's great for users? And often the answer was no. In that case, or we we weren't able to find we weren't able to find a way where the answer was yes. Uh, we haven't finished the exploration, but that would be the question I would ask with all of these protocols: is like, can we make a great experience for users? And I worry sometimes that people take this leap you're saying where it's like, well, there's something out there that we haven't been able to trust. And so the answer is a system where you just don't have to trust anybody. You can only trust in yourself. And I actually think probably a better answer is not a trustless system. A better answer is to have a platform you can trust. And trust it by leaving, right? I mean, that's actually the biggest expression of trust is I could leave, but instead I choose to stay here. And we made that decision very early on in Substack that you could, you know, you're going to be able to leave at any time. You take your relationships, you take your payment relationships even. And that put us under a lot of pressure, right? We take 10% as, as the fee. That's how we make money. We're, you only make money when you make money. And so at some point, you know, at, at the start, that was a great deal. If you're like, oh, it's free. I can publish my email. This is a wonderful thing. And then they start making millions of dollars a year and they say, wait a minute, like, what am I, you know, outside of like, you know, all of this other phil- heady philosophical stuff, like how much money <laughs> am I paying you and is it worth it? And the thing that it's caused us to have to do is to be a reliable, trustworthy partner for writers and to serve them, right? We've built this network where we can go to them now and say, look, you may be, you know, you're paying this 10% fee, but look over here, you're getting, you know, 15, 20, 30% of your new paid subscriptions from this, from this network, it's forced us to have to like serve the people who are using the platform. That's the thing we try to do. We try to put it, make our business model aligned so that 
you can trust that we'll do it, not only because you know we hope that we're good people, but because we've set up a system that just works that way. I don't want to dwell on this too long because Substack Notes is new it's and one day this feels at this like, point. <laughs> it would feel like a champagne problem, but it's notable to me that Substack Notes is closed, right? You can't leave it if you build up a substantial following there. And I think there's a tension there that you will have to sort out over time. Well, I do, you know, it, it is still based on the subscri- the exact same subscription network. Um, and so it it is, it is, you can leave it in the sense that you can go and take your audience with you. But you, not in notes, like the, the, that social graph stays with you. Again, no. it's one day old. Like if you no, end up having this well, problem. Let me, let me, let me actually correct you. That's not true. It's not true. The, it, it is based on the subscription graph. Substack is a subscription network. And so when people subscribe to you on notes, you can leave. You can, and you will, you can take your set of subscribers and you get all their emails. Is that why you can't follow someone? This was when I asked her team, what questions you have? The feature (laughs) requests came in fast and furious. And one of them was, can I just follow someone without subscribing to the newsletter? And you've consciously connected those two things. I think, I think, uh, Casey put this as, I wish I could flirt with people before I had to, you know, make a commitment. And we're, so we're, we're, yeah, sorry. Casey Newton. Uh, platformer.news, good stuff stack, you should subscribe. <laughs> we're looking, like we're, obviously we're still figuring out how this things work. We're still building it. But this is the thing that we ultimately want to do is we do think that the the subscription network is the thing that sets Substack apart, right? We want you to have a direct relationship. We think there might be, it might be good. And, you know, people come and they, this is a good example actually of people who say, well, this looks like everything else. Why can't I follow people? Like, well, actually is, this is pretty different. And we're looking at ways to like, you know, uh, let people configure their experience and all this stuff. But the root of it for us is still the subscription graph because at the end of the day, that's the thing the writers want and that's the way that they're going to get paid and we're going to get paid. We have to take another break. We'll be back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
We're back. Chris and I are about to talk about Substack's content moderation guidelines. Like I said in the intro, it makes sense to me that the more you provide infrastructure like email service, the looser your guidelines are. And the more your product looks like a consumer service, the stricter your guidelines are. Ben Thompson, who writes Stratechery, has a great post about this called A Framework for Moderation. I encourage you to go look it up. That's pretty much what I think, too. Now, Substack, which has been an email service provider, has had pretty loose guidelines. And I wanted to know if it would tighten those guidelines for Substack Notes, the new consumer feature that looks a lot like Twitter. And I want to call out that I got something wrong here. I came up with what I thought would be an easy hypothetical about whether posts calling to kick brown people out of the country would be moderated on Substack Notes. I thought this was a gimme, because obviously, but also because I had read Substack's content guidelines a little too loosely. Here's the relevant section under the heading of hate. Substack cannot be used to publish content or fund initiatives that incite violence based on protected classes. Offending behavior includes credible threats of physical harm to people based on their race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, disability, or medical condition. Now, I think it's debatable whether calling to kick brown people out of the country incites violence. I think it does. But I can see the argument that in my example, it literally does not. I wish I had used a clearer example. That's on me. But I think it's more notable that Chris didn't correct me either way and actually didn't engage the question at all, which you'll see how that went. All right, back to the interview. All right, last question on notes. Notes is the most consumer-y feature, right? You're, you're saying it's inheriting a bunch of expectations from the consumer social platforms, whether or not you really want it to, right? It's inheriting the expectations of Twitter, even from Twitter itself. It's inheriting the expectations that you should be able to flirt with people and not have to subscribe to their email lists. In that spectrum of content moderation, it's the top. It's the tip of the spear. The expectations are you will moderate that thing just like any big social platform will moderate. Up until now, you've had the out of being able to say, look, we are an enterprise software provider. Like, if people don't want to pay for this newsletter that's full of anti-vax information, fine. If people don't want to pay or subscribe to this newsletter where somebody has harsh views on trans people, fine. That's the choice. The market will do it. And because you're the enterprise software provider, you've had some cover. You run the social network that inherits all the expectations of the social network. People start posting that stuff. And the feed is algorithmic, and that's what gets engagement. That's a real problem for you, right? Have you thought about how you're going to moderate notes? <laughs> we think about this stuff a lot. You might be, you might be surprised. <laughs> I know you, you do. But like, th- this is a very different. Sh- this is a very different product. Here's how I think about this: um, is that Substack is neither an enterprise software provider nor a social network in the way that we're you know, in the mold that we're used to experiencing them. The, our, our self-conception, the thing that we are attempting to build, and I think if you look at the, at the constituent pieces, in fact, the emerging reality is we are a new thing called the subscription network, where people are subscribing directly to others, where the, the order in the system is sort of like emergent from empowered, not just the readers, but also the writers. And we believe that we can make something different and better than what came before with social with social networking. The way that I think about this is, you know, if we draw a distinction between moderation and censorship, right? Where moderation is, hey, I want to be a part of a community of a place where 
you know, it's, there's a vibe or there's a set of rules or there's a set of norms or there's an expectation of what I'm going to see and not see that is good for me. And the thing that I'm coming to is going to like try to enforce that set of rules versus censorship where you come and say, although you may want to be a part of this thing and this other person may want to be a part of it too. And you may want to talk to each other and send emails. A third party is going to step in and say, you shall not do that. We shall prevent that. And I think with the legacy social networks, the way that that business model has pulled those feeds to be is that it's pulled them ever closer, right? There, there hasn't been an, a great idea for how do we do moderation without censorship. And I think in a subscription network, that becomes possible. How? I mean, I just want to be clear. If somebody shows up on Substack and says all brown people are animals and they shouldn't be allowed in America, you're going to censor that. That's, like, that's just flatly against your terms of service. So we do have a terms of service that that you know have narrowly prescribed uh, you know things that are not allowed on the platform. That one They're- I'm pretty sure is just flatly against your terms <laughs> of service. You would not allow that one. That's why I picked it. I think so. There's there are extreme cases, right? And I'm not going to get into like the the way. Hold is, on, what in is America this in 2023, that? that is not so extreme, right? We should not allow as many brown people in the country. Not so extreme. Do you allow that on Substack? Would you allow that on Substack notes? I think the like the way that we think about this is we want to put the writers and the readers in charge. No, I, w- right? I really want you to answer that question. Is that allowed on Substack Notes? We should not allow brown people in the country. I'm not going to get into gotcha content you, moderation. Questions. This is not a gotcha. I'm a brown person. Do you think people on Substack should say I should get kicked out of the country? I'm not going to engage in you know content moderation. Would you or want you this or that? That one is black and white. I, mean, I just want to be clear. I've talked to a lot of social network CEOs and they would they would have no hesitation telling me that that was against their their moderation rules. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to we're not going to get into specific, you know, would you or won't you content moderation Why? questions. Why? I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, a a useful way to talk about this stuff. But it's the thing that you have to do. Right? I mean, you have to make these decisions, don't you? The way that we think about this is, yes, there is going to be a terms of service. We are going to have, you know, a, a, we have content policies that are deliberately tuned to allow lots of things that we disagree with, that we, you know, strongly disagree with. We think we have a strong commitment to freedom of speech, freedom of the press. We think these are you know, essential ingredients in a free society. We think that it would be a failure for us to build a new kind of network that can't support those ideals. And we want to design the network in a way where people are in control of their experience, where they're able to do that stuff. We're at the very early innings of that. We don't have all the answers for how those things will work. We are making a new thing. And we are, you know, literally we launched this thing one day ago. We're going to have to figure a lot of this stuff out. Uh, I, I don't think it's... You have, to figure that, you, you have to figure out, should we allow overt racism on Substack notes? You have to figure that out. No, I'm not going to engage in speculation, you know, specific, would you allow this or that content question? You know, this is a very it's... bad response to this question, right? You're, you're aware that you've, you've blundered into this. You should just say no. And I'm, I'm wondering what's keeping you from just saying no. I have a blanket. I don't think it's useful to get into like, would you allow this or that thing on Substack? If I read you your own terms of service, will you agree that this prohibition is in that terms of service? 
I, I don't think that's a useful exercise. Okay. I'm granting you the out, right? That when you're the email service provider, you should have a looser moderation rule. There are a lot of my listeners and a lot of people out there who do not agree with me on that. I'll give you that out, that as the email service provider, you can have looser moderation rules because that is sort of a market-driven thing. But when you're the consumer product, my belief is that you should have higher moderation rules. And so I'm just wondering, applying the blanket, I understand why that's your answer in the past. I'm wondering why you, it's just like, there's a piece here that I'm missing of now it's the consumer product. You're, Do you you're, not think that it should have a different set of moderation standards? You are free to have that belief. And I do think it's possible that there will be different moderation standards. I do think it's an interesting thing. I think the place that we maybe differ is you're coming at this from a point where you think that if something is, because something is bad, if let's uh, grant that this thing is a terrible, bad thing. Yeah, that I think you should grant that this idea is bad. That therefore, um, that therefore censorship of it is the most effective tool to prevent that. And I think we've run, in my estimation, over the past you know, f- five years, however long it's been, a grand experiment in the idea that uh, pervasive censorship successfully combats ideas that the owners of platforms don't like. And my read is that that hasn't actually worked. That hasn't been a success. Um, it hasn't caused those ideas not to exist. It hasn't built trust. It hasn't ended polarization. It hasn't done any of those things. And I don't think that taking the the approach that the legacy platforms has taken and expecting it to have different outcomes is just obviously the right answer the way that you seem to be presenting it to be. Um, and I don't think that's a question of like, is no, think, some, no, wait, obje- some particular I, objection I understand the philosophical right argument. or wrong? Wait, I want to be clear. I think government speech regulations are horrible, right? I think that's bad. I don't think there should be government censorship in this country, but I think companies should state their values and go out into the marketplace and live up to their values. And I think the platform companies, for better or worse, have missed it on their values a lot for a variety of reasons. And when I ask you this question, right, it's do you make software to spread abhorrent views? that allows abhorrent views to spread. That's just a statement of values. That's why you have a terms of service. I know that there's stuff that you want a last subsect to be used for because I can read it in your terms of service. And that feels like not a big philosophical conversation about freedom of speech, which I will have at the drop of a hat as, as listeners to the show know, but actually you saying, you know what? I don't want to state my values. And I'm just wondering why that is. I think the conversation about freedom of speech is the essential conversation to have. I don't think this like this this let me play a gotcha and ask this or that is. But you a, are, is but a Substack is not the government, right? Substack is a company that competes in the marketplace. Substack is not the government, the- and but it we still believe that it's essential to promote freedom of the press and freedom of speech. We don't think that that is a thing that's limited to. Something so the Substack government notes do. becomes overrun by racism and transphobia. That's fine with you. We're going to have to work very hard to make Substack Notes be a great place to have, you know, the the readers and the writers be in charge, where you can have, you know, the kinds of conversations that you find valuable. Um, that's the that's the exciting challenge that we have ahead of us. What do you want it to be? I want it to be 
not any one thing. This is something that I see uh, of Substack as a whole. If you look at the leaderboards on Substack, if you look at what's successful on Substack, it looks to me like sort of an index fund of culture. Um, it's not the place for anyone. You know, everybody has ideas that Substack is, is you know, it's for famous journalists who struck out on their own, or it's for this or that. They have some pocket of people that that they know of. But I think if Substack can live up to the grand ambition that we have for it, it will not feel like one monolithic place that has one set of rules, that has one, uh, you know, one vibe or one overarching thing, but it'll feel like a place where, you know, every Substack is its own island as it is today, where you can have your own rules for your community, where you can have your, you know, you can set quite strict rules. You're operating within the very loose sort of like overall platform-wide rules um, and where writers and readers exercise their freedom to make those spaces feel very different and to have different experiences. How does that express itself in Substack notes, right? If I post a note and I don't want people to participate in a certain way, do I have the moderation tools to prevent that from happening? Yes. Today, they're very, they're pretty basic. You can mute people, you can block people. We're very shortly going to be adding the ability to like limit replies to paying subscribers of your Substack. And I think there's a lot more that we can do beyond those basic tools as we build this thing out in partnership with the people that are using it uh, to give you more and more power to shape your experience and the experience around the things you make. If someone wants to set a set of moderation standards on Substack notes for their community, that runs right into your terms of service, how do you make that determination? I mean, we review it compared to the terms of service. Who does that review? Uh, we have a team and ultimately we, the founders, do it if it if it is a big question. Okay. I mean, this runs into the, I would say, the standard decoder questions. Substack, the last time I talked to you, was 20 people. I think it's around 90 now. You had some layoffs, but it's around that size, right? 80. 80. Uh, how many of those people are trust and safety folks? A handful. Okay. And there's a bunch of stuff that any standard size platform has to really contend with, right? Copyright infringement. I'm assuming I can't just post, uh, the full Moana movie to Substack notes, right? Of course. How are you, how are you handling that stuff? Um, we're following the DMCA process. Okay. And is that automated or do you have like a set of people do it? Some, you know, like at some scale, like YouTube has an army of people that manage the DMCA. Yeah, it's a combination. And do you think that's going to scale as quickly as it has to have hit scale for every other platform? Like this is an escalating set of moderation costs, right? Is like DMCA compliance all on its own is an ever escalating set of compliance costs for every social network. Yeah, I think as we scale, there's going to continue to be, you know, all of these things. We're going to we're going to have to solve these problems. We're not going to have them, I think, in the exact same way that others Others experience them. A big one is spam. Like a lot of people want to come and spam. Like that's yeah. a real thing. That's a thing that we have to, to deal with. We have the option to look at what's come before and structure the network in ways that make that structurally harder. But even given that, it's not like it's it's there's no, you know, there's no silver bullet solution. There is gonna be we're gonna have to have mitigation efforts that happen. The reason I asked specifically about costs and how they might rise is the last time you were on, we talked about the Y Combinator idea of default alive. And you said, look, if we were, if we just left everything alone right now, we'd be profitable. We want to be default alive, but we have to invest in order to grow. 
the last funding round you ha- had was Andreessen Horowitz. You raised $65 million at a $650 million valuation, according to the notes I have here. It's There's reporting that you tried to raise again last year and you, you scrapped it. And then you recently launched uh, a retail investor program. You've raised about $7 million. As part of that, you had to release some financial statements from 2021, and your costs are higher than your revenues. In fact, you have negative revenue because you're paying out to to your authors before their revenue pays you back. How did we get in that situation? So the way that we thought about this, in especially in 2020, you know, 2021, was we knew we wanted to bootstrap this network. We wanted to like start this this flywheel going. And we wanted to accelerate that. We were like, you know, people are joining Substack, this is happening, but we want to kind of like find ways to use money to make that happen as quickly as possible. Um, we raised a bunch of money, we spent a bunch of money uh, doing that, kickstarting that thing. And the short version of this is that it worked. Uh, we started a network that's very powerful. Um, a bunch of the people who were attempting to copy Substack, you mentioned Review, Facebook made a Substack clone competitor yeah. thing, uh, which I think missed the point as well. Um, but, you know, in, in our estimation, we've kind of like got this, bootstrapped this thing, got it started in a way where today Substack is clearly the best place uh, if you're starting one of these subscription things in the Substack mold. There's this tremendous effect of having all these people here. And we don't have to spend money like that anymore in order to grow and to sustain that. So those are the 2021 financials negative revenue. What's your revenue this year? We're not going to release any new sort of like revenue data that we haven't otherwise. Some things that I can tell you are some of the things we have shipped, which are there's now today more than 35 million active subscriptions on the Substack network. The Substack network drives uh, over 40% of all subscriptions and over 15% of paid subscriptions, uh, of which there are about 2 million. And the top 10 publishers on Substack are making collectively more than $25 million per year. Would you invest in a company if you couldn't see their last year's financial data? Yes. Why is that? For the right company, for a company that is doing something ambitious, and I, I mean, the way to look at it, the way to look at a company like this, startups that I have invested in, uh, Substack with what we're doing is not looking at, you know. Wait, you've invested in companies where you haven't seen their financial information? Yes. Okay. Because I just have a quote. Ben Thompson's a friend of mine. He wrote about your retail investment strategy. And the word he used was shameful, right, to not give people this information. Our own Liz Lopato called it a cynical ploy uh, to tell people they're helping writers in the absence of real financial information. Why not give people last year's financial information before you ask them for money? We we're a private company. We are doing a regulated community funding process. We've given all of the financial information that goes with that process. And we've given them, we've given the information that we think is the important information for telling the story of what we're doing at Substack. Remember, just we're giving them the option. We're giving them the the chance to uh, invest and have a piece of it if they if they choose to, if they think this thing is something they want to be a part of and something they believe in. What do you think people should expect their returns to be? We're not 
I can't comment on what people should expect the returns to be. And I can't comment on any of the like uh, specific things about the thing because about the, <laughs> about the, about the community round, because we're doing it carefully to comply with all of the regulated things. So if you want to look at that stuff, you have to go to the wefunder.com slash substack page where that stuff is available. Just to end on the, co- the idea of costs, right? So you now run something, again, I, I take it at your word, you don't want it to be a social network, but it looks like a social network. You will inherit the problems of other sales social networks, right? People spamming it, people posting copyrighted stuff that Disney wants you to take down, weird stuff is going to happen. Those costs will escalate. Are you still doing the sort of Substack pro deals where you're, you're fronting the money, you're uh, doing advances to writers to come onto the Substack pro- platform? No, not really. Did, do you think that program worked? Do you think that that was, do you think that's paying for itself over time? I think it absolutely worked. I mean, as a way to sort of kickstart the, kickstart the network um, and get sort of the company on the trajectory where it is, I, I think it unquestionably worked. So as your costs go up, just like legal, regulatory, copyright compliance costs go up, where is the next set of subscriptions going to come from if the big top of funnels like Twitter seem to be dwindling or outright blocking you? And you're not doing the kickstarting Substack Pro deals anymore. I think people have this misconception that Twitter is this giant source of traffic, where I think the reality is more like it's a giant source of mindshare. Um, it's not. <laughs> I agree it's, with it's, that. You know, it's not. I, I'm sure that if you look at your stats and you look at what percentage is coming from Twitter, it's not actually it's a nothing. huge chunk. It could, it could go and, away tomorrow and it wouldn't mean nothing to us. I think that's actually a pretty common experience. Um, and the fact of the matter is, so Substack has a business model that works. You know, we 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 make money when writers make money. Uh, we're growing. We're you know we have a path to profitability. We're default alive. We're doing all. We have control of our destiny as a company. I think we're in really good shape. And I think that the the potential for Substack notes to accelerate growth for writers um, only helps all of that. Do you think the app is kind of the heart of the future of Substack? Right, you're bringing people more into it with with notes. I will tell you right now. Um, we mentioned Casey. I get platformer. I get a notification about platformer in the app three minutes on the dot before I get that email every single time. It it really does feel like you want to pull people into the app. Is that a part of the growth story here? I think the app is an important piece of the Substack story. I wouldn't call it the heart, but I do think it's an important. You know, as if, if part of what the Substack vision is as this new economic engine for culture, it's not just an alternative place for writers to come and, you know, make money and own their audience and, you know, have editorial freedom, all the stuff. It's also a place where readers can come to be a part of that ecosystem, to choose to spend their time and attention in a different way. I think the Substack app and Substack.com are kind of like an important manifestation of that thing for readers. Do you foresee a future where that becomes more of a closed ecosystem or more of an open ecosystem, right? Email, like you're built on email, which is massively open, but you're saying the app is going to get more important. And right now it's fairly closed. Do you think that's going to continue? So the app has all of your subscriptions, just like your email. This is kind of how the thing works. It's based off the same subscription network. And actually I think the great strength of Substack is we want that subscription network to be open in the ways that it's open today, which is when I, you know, I can bring my audience to Substack. I can take my, I can leave. I have exit rights. I have, you know, part of the reason I know that I can trust Substack and that it's a reliable partner is that 
you know, I can also leave if I ever don't feel that way. And we want content from Substack that, you know, we want published to Substack and have it travel everywhere. We want it to spread on every network. We want it to go into every podcast app. We want it to be on every platform where you as a writer care to be. And we've designed the, the business model of the company to incentivize us for that. We, we wouldn't want to hinder those things because those are part of what makes the whole thing work. You've given me a lot of time. I want to thank you just for engaging and sticking with it. What's next for Substack here? What should we be looking for? Um, we're going to obviously keep, this is, you know, we've launched notes a day ago. We have a tremendous amount to learn. I do think, you know, it is a fundamentally Substack as a whole, this network is a fundamentally new thing. We're very much in the process of figuring out how it works. We're going to keep building it and we're going to keep being a reliable partner for writers and building things that help them grow, help them do the work they believe in, help them make a living, sometimes a fortune. If Twitter never comes back, is that fine for you? We would be sad about that because it would be it would it would hurt writers. It would be annoying for writers. It would make the you know a lot of writers use and love Twitter, um, but it would be fine for us. Yeah. All right, Chris. Thank you so much for getting into it. I do appreciate it. We'll have we'll have you back sooner than two years next time. Cheers. Thanks again to Chris Best for taking the time to chat with me on Decoder today. I mean that we do this show remotely. People can just hang up. Chris stuck with it, and I appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I check and reply to those emails. You can also hit us up directly. We're at DecoderPod on Twitter and on TikTok, which is really fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Hadley Robinson and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.